On the night of June 13, 1980, concerned husband Alan Gore called neighbors to check on his wife, Betty, who wasn't answering the phone. When neighbors went to check, they found a horrific scene. Betty was dead. Shockingly, days later, Betty's friend and neighbor, Candy Montgomery, confessed. This is the story of how Candy Montgomery got away with murder. Hello everyone, welcome to the Devil's Brew podcast. My name is Allie and I'm your host. This is my first episode doing this podcast. I'm so excited to start doing a true crime podcast. I listen to a lot of deep divey, spooky story, true crimey shows, so I thought it would just be a lot of fun to start my own and I hope it's good. (laughs) I don't really know what I'm doing. I hope this episode goes well and you guys seem to enjoy it. So let's jump right into our story today. We're going to be talking about the murder of Betty Gore. So our story starts in the small quaint town of Wiley, Texas, and this seemed to be a pretty idyllic place for families to either start or raise their families. It seemed pretty safe. It had a population of 3,000, so it was pretty small, and it was out right outside of the big city of Dallas. And two families, they lived right next to each other. They're kind of the big players in our story today. So we have our first family, the Montgomerys, and they it was Candy and her husband Pat, and they had two children. And they were neighbors with the other big family that's a part of the story. Their names are the Gores. It was Betty and Alan. They were married to each other and they had one daughter. I'm not really going to talk about the kids' names. They're not really involved. Betty and Alan's daughter becomes best friends with Candy and Pat's oldest daughter. It comes up every once in a while, but it's not super big or confusing. And so both families, although they were neighbors, they also went to the same church and that's kind of where they became more connected or like knew of each other more. For example, Betty and Candy, they sang in the choir with their husbands. They played a lot of games together at the church, like volleyball, and they volunteered a lot for community events. And so that's where our story kind of takes off, was at a church volleyball game, Candy and Alan were both going after the ball and accidentally bumped into each other. The bump was innocent, but became the catalyst to something more dangerous. According to Texas Monthly, they did a really good write-up of this case, and that's where I got all of my information, basically but they were close enough for Candy to realize, quote, Alan smelled sexy, unquote. And remember, she is married to her husband, Pat, and Alan is married to his wife, Betty. And so Candy was starting to get to a point in her life. She was 28 years old. She had two kids. She was married. She was a stay-at-home housewife at this point, and she was just starting to grow a little bit bored. She was like, what am I supposed to do next? What's my next thing? And she did grow up as an army brat, so she was a little bit more used to moving around. She kind of had more trouble staying stagnant. So she was just trying to look for something new, like try to spice up her life however she could. And it's just weird because she had the dream life, you know? She seemed to be a doting, loving mom to her two kids. She was really active and well-liked in her community. And her husband was a promising engineer for Texas Instruments. He was making a $70,000 salary, which today would have been about $350,000. So they kind of had it all. She was just starting to grow bored. And according to the Texas Monthly article, the way that Alan smelled that night, it made Candy realized what she was craving, quote, fireworks, unquote. 
So we're going to shift our focus and talk about Alan Gore really quick and the beginning relationship between him and Candy. So although Alan Gore was a young, bright man and was the one that Candy would risk her marriage for, everyone was surprised when Betty Gore first fell in love with him, as most felt he wasn't conventionally attractive enough. A lot of people talked about how he seemed a bit pudgier and even in his early 20s he started to show signs of a receding hairline i felt so weird reading that because i was like everyone looks different like <laughs> it just like he does cheat on his wife but it felt so weird how everyone was just dragging him anyway betty still fell in love with him betty was born on january 9th 1950 as betty elaine pomeroy and she grew up in norwick kansas she was beautiful and popular in her small town upon attending college she met and fell in love with her math class teaching assistant who was alan and they were wedded in january of 1970 Shortly after getting married, they had their first daughter and decided to settle down in the small suburbs of Wiley, Texas. Betty became a fifth grade teacher in 1976 and was very active in her church community. According to Find a Grave, she, quote, coordinated the congregation's youth group and women's division, unquote. Allen was working for Rockwell International as a major defense contractor. Allen constantly had to travel for work, and it was always reported that Betty didn't like that he was away from home so much. So this is kind of a point of contention that we'll bring up a little bit throughout the case. I didn't see if this was like an anxiety thing that Betty had or if she just didn't like it when he let like from the from my research it seems like she was very annoyed that Alan was leaving for work but I didn't see if this was like a fear thing where she was like please don't leave I'm like very scared when you leave or if Alan would bring up hey I have to leave for work and she would just be like oh, please don't leave. Like, I do that with my husband. Of course, I want to be with my husband all of the time, and I wish he wouldn't travel if he needed to, but I wouldn't be like, you can't go. This is scaring. I would just be like, oh, that's a bummer. Have fun on your trip, and maybe Betty was like that, or maybe she was very much like, please don't leave. I'm very scared. It was just, it was just brought up a lot, and I didn't really know, like, what point of view was really being shown, because I feel like throughout this case, she's presented as a very nagging wife, and I really don't, it's really hard because a lot of the research that I read, it was written by men, and I don't want to give men a bad rap, but especially in the 80s, it feels like a lot of writers, and more so men, are a little bit less sympathetic towards all of the changes that women have to go through. Like, for example, Betty, she's a teacher and a wife, and she just had a baby. Her body entirely changed during the birth and delivery of her child, so I can understand why she might have been a little bit more upset. She's going through a lot of different hormonal changes at the moment, and I think Betty deserves a little bit more sympathy <laughs> throughout this story than she actually gets and it's just it's hard when I read something that says that she didn't like that he was away from home so much and that it's brought up constantly but it's like what narrative or how was Betty actually feeling in that case it was just really weird how it was written anyway that that was just kind of a weird spot that I would read it was like I don't know I'm gonna address this anyway around this time 
Their marriage started to hit a bump in the road. Their sex life, per Betty's request, seemed to be regimented around her fertility window, as Betty was trying to plan the birth of their second child during her summer break, so she didn't have to take time off, because again, she was a full-time working mother. Like, she was a teacher, and she is doing the planning of when to get pregnant so that way she can deliver during her summer break. But it was just interesting to see that she is taking these steps to try to plan for her family and, like, make sure that she doesn't have to take time off of work. And she's seen as nagging when she was just trying to plan out her family. Like, I don't know. I just really don't like how a lot of authors wrote about Betty Anyway, it seems like, from my research, the Gore's sex life was the only wedge that was put between Alan and Betty, and although it was narrow, it was just wide enough for Candy Montgomery to slip through and begin her affair with Alan. loved Betty, but he felt that Betty had a lot of emotional demands that he couldn't reach all of the time, and their sex life was starting to get at him, or their lack of sex, sorry, was starting to get at him. It seemed like their sex life was missing spontaneity and passion, especially during this time when Betty was trying to focus their sex around the best chance of fertility, and that ended up making Alan feel like it was more of a chore and not a moment of, I love my partner or I'm having fun. It, it just felt like there was a lot more pressure on Alan's side about their sex life, and so it started to kind of, like, hit a little bit of a lull, but I also want to reiterate that Betty was working long hours at the school and would come home tense and upset from the demands that teaching has. She was also stressed with trying to become pregnant with her second baby. Pregnancy and postpartum are very difficult, hard, and sometimes traumatizing transitions for a woman. So I understand why Betty didn't seem as interested in having sex. It felt like Alan just had a really hard time communicating his wants and or needs as well. During this time period, it was the 80s and they were devout churchgoers, so they probably felt that it was taboo to think of sex in a pleasurable way, but also in a communicative way. I personally feel like Alan should have discussed with Betty rather than the press about how the sex they were having wasn't how he wanted to have sex. And this case is pretty sex heavy and it reminded me throughout my research how unfortunate it is that talking about sex is taboo. It's a very hard topic for partners to discuss between each other. Even me, who's very confident and secure in my marriage and discussing my feelings, sometimes I get nervous talking about my husband about the sex that I want to have or not to have. And that's because I grew up during a time where it wasn't okay to talk about this stuff. And luckily now we're in an era where it's finally being recognized and understood how important talking about sex is. Anyway, despite Alan's confusion towards his marriage and Candy, within the next few weeks, Alan pulled Candy aside to to see if she meant anything more about what she told him. Candy then said, quote, would you be interested in having an affair? Unquote. Shocked by her directness, Alan didn't know how to respond. He didn't want to hurt Betty, but there's a woman right here who's very interested in him. Alan didn't know what to do, but gave Candy a quick kiss before opening her door to let her out. This is talked about a lot throughout the case, but Alan is a very indecisive person. You can kind of see throughout the story someone comes to him about, I want to do this, and he is just kind of like, I don't know, I'll think about it, and he's very flip-floppy. This case is so hard because I don't want to be speculative and I want to be unbiased, but it's hard because a lot of the research that I read felt very biased, but it felt like Alan 
just needed to figure out how to talk about his feelings. And like, I just wish he knew how to talk about his feelings a little bit more because it feels like the only problems that both couples had in their marriages is they just didn't know how to communicate with each other. And I think if they just knew how to communicate, a lot of these problems wouldn't have been as blown up as they become. Anyway, after Candy approached Alan, three weeks had passed and it was now her 29th birthday. Alan called her that day, inviting her to lunch in the next town over so Alan could get his truck fixed, but also talk more about what Candy had said weeks earlier. At lunch, Alan surprised Candy with a card that read, quote, for the last of the red heart lovers, unquote, and inside was a bag of red hots. I think this is a candy. Anyway, this humored Candy, and she seemed to like these punny cards, and she was really happy that Alan had thought of her. Candy felt that she was lacking attention from her husband, Pat, and was happy to finally have some from another man. So, at this meeting, Alan and Candy discussed more about the idea of having an affair, but Alan still seemed hesitant about this idea, so they agreed that they would think and plan more. Soon, Alan began calling Candy more and more, becoming accustomed to talking daily and intimately with her and finding that he could maintain normalcy when he came home to Betty. Candy discovered this with her husband, Pat, as well. It wasn't until Candy invited Alan to her house for lunch that the affair plan began to grow traction. When Alan arrived, Candy had put up these two giant posters on her wall, and one poster read, Why's? And the other one read, Why not? This also made Alan laugh, and I guess it eased the tension. So they made a giant pros and cons sheet about why or why not to cheat on their partners, basically, uh, during this lunch. So they went over these pros and cons in great detail, and a decision still wasn't made that day. A week later, Alan called Candy and said, quote, I've decided I want to go ahead with it, unquote. But the affair didn't start until a few more weeks later. They wanted to establish some ground rules for their affair. According to Texas Monthly, that article that I pulled a lot of research from, these were the rules and schedule that Candy and Alan agreed to abide by. And it's pretty interesting how much they strategized um, this affair. So here are the rules. Quote, If either one of them ever wanted to end the affair for whatever reason, it would end. No questions asked. If either one became too emotionally involved, the affair would end. If they ever started taking risks that shouldn't be taken, the affair would end. All expenses, food, motel room, gasoline would be shared equally. They would meet only on weekdays while their spouses were at work. Candy would be in charge of fixing lunch on the days they met so that they could have more time. They figured they would need all of Alan's two-hour lunch. They decided that they would meet on a Tuesday or a Thursday, but once every two weeks. They thought that this time worked the best because Candy was already out and about those days. She was dropping off her son at his church preschool. And then she would go have an affair and then come back, pick him up, and take him home. Like, nothing ever happened. Anyway, (laughs) so... In December of 1978, their fair officially began. So for six months, they followed their rules, where Candy would rent motel rooms near his work, they would share their lunch, their thoughts and feelings, and then they would have sex, cheating emotionally and physically on their partners. Sometimes they wouldn't even have sex. They just enjoyed talking to each other. They found that they could talk to each other a lot easier than they could with their partners. They felt like there wasn't this big... I don't know how to describe it, but they felt there was a lot of emotional weight attached to their partner. They were worried about saying something that would make their partner either sad or upset, and they just found it 
harder to talk about their feelings, but they felt it was a lot easier to talk to each other because there wasn't a lot of skin in the game. So a lot of the times they just wouldn't have sex. They would just sit on the bed and have lunch and chat for like an hour or two and then go on with their lives. So it was kind of like (laughs) free therapy, I guess. So they started their affair. Around May and June of 1979, Betty Gore was actually seven months along in her pregnancy with her and Alan's second child. Candy even threw Betty a baby shower at the church. This was also when Alan decided that the affair would need to be put on hold. Not because Alan was feeling guilty, however. Alan was worried that if Betty went into labor while he was with Candy, he would miss the birth of his second child or raise suspicion if he wasn't there for Betty. (sighs) Okay, so Candy decided that this was also for the best. She was starting to feel guilty for her husband, Pat, who seemed to be completely in the dark that his wife was sleeping with another man. Obviously, Betty Gore is the victim of the story. However, Pat didn't do anything. He just seemed to be a regular, happy, loving husband, and his wife was cheating on him. Betty and Pat just didn't deserve this at all. And it's just so sad that that their partners just destroyed their marriages. Anyway, they paused the affair during this time in the summer of 79, and Alan and Betty's second daughter was soon born. And during this time, because Betty was at home still with the baby, this is her summer break, she's on her maternity leave, they just had a baby, they were kind, their intimacy was starting to rekindle, they were rediscovering their love for each other during this time, um, and their baby was really starting to bring them together. But this was short-lived, because a few months later, Alan reached out to Candy to restart the affair. Alan started to feel guilty, though, when he started to see Candy again. He realized that he and Betty were getting back to where they used to be. He also started to realize that Betty was home raising his children while he was out with another woman. Betty was on her maternity leave and break between school years. So although it seems like Alan had maybe a little bit of paternity leave and then like went back to work. I don't know if paternity leave was a thing way back then because it's still like controversial and for some reason in today's society, well in America at least it feels like we talk a lot about like why do dads need paternity leave. Anyway, that's a whole other tangent that I'll, I can get into later. But Alan was at work during this time, so he could leave the house. It wasn't like, oh, bye, honey. I'm just leaving. I'm just stepping out, like just leaving Betty while she was with her two kids. Like he would leave to work. And then they kind of started their affair again with the rules that they established of when they would meet. So it was during his work hours that they started having an affair again. But it's just sad to think about that, like while he was on his lunch break sleeping with Candy, Betty was just at home with her two children like all alone and like her partner like wasn't with her wasn't taking care of her during this time and again like she's in her postpartum stage like that's really difficult and hard for a woman to go through so I just feel really sad for Betty during all of this because her husband's cheating on her while she's raising his kids and like one night Betty tried to make a sexual advance towards Alan and he rejected her because he had been out with Candy earlier in the day and I would be like so devastated and so heartbroken if like I didn't make the advance normally and I was trying something new trying to go out of my comfort zone and I was like turned down by my partner I mean obviously you gotta ask for 
consent and make sure everyone wants to have sex, but I would be even more upset if I had found out that they weren't in the mood because they had been busy (laughs) earlier. It's just so, so upsetting to read. Anyway, after he had rejected his wife that night, Alan started to feel way more guilty and he tried to stop the affair for good. But this made Candy become more upset with Alan and she even felt that this was unfair to her. The two were falling too deep. They were starting to break the rules that they set for each other. They were starting to fall for each other, enjoying the conversations they were having, and just being in each other's presence. It was evident that the affair started to become more than just sex for Candy and Alan. Despite not knowing that the affair was happening, Betty urged Alan to try a marriage encounter program that the church ran to help couples. Basically, church couples therapy. Alan had taken a new job and Betty was still recovering from the pregnancy and birth of their second child while also trying to go back to work. She was also suffering from high blood pressure and chronic aches and pains. The couple felt that the stress from their lives was starting to affect their marriage, so they decided to give the church program a try to fix it. So the program was a weekend long and the rules were fairly simple. Um, It was hosted at a nearby motel, so all the couples who attended the, the event, they all had their own room and in the mornings, everyone would meet in the conference room and the person who was hosting the event would mostly just give them a prompt and be like, how does this make you feel? Write your feelings in your notebook and then talk with your partner about what you had written. To me, it seemed like a great way to get couples to open up with each other and like learn how to communicate with each other. They could write their feelings and it was all presented that they would talk in a safe, open, and like listening environment. It sounds like Alan and Betty really benefited from this trip as Alan realized how much he missed being a part of his family and he had new skills to help work through his and Betty's feelings. So at the end of 1979, almost a year into the affair, Alan met with Candy to end the affair for good. Candy tried to convince Alan that they should continue and it seemed that Alan was very hesitant in making any decision as he didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So Candy ultimately made the decision. The affair was over the two were officially broken up. It's now June 13th, 1980, um, about six months later since Alan and Candy ended their affair. Alan and Betty are now planning to go to Europe, just the two of them, and their marriage seemed to be on the up and up. However, Alan had to go on a work trip from Texas to Minnesota and would be leaving Betty and their two children at home for the weekend. Again, Betty hated being alone. Unfortunately, Alan seemed like he had to go on this work trip. So that afternoon, he had kissed Betty goodbye, got into a cab, and waved goodbye to his wife and baby daughter before going to the airport. This was the last time that Alan Gore would see his wife, Betty. She was smiling, holding her daughter in her arms, and waving goodbye with the baby's forearm towards Alan before the cab would drive off. Alan promised that he would phone Betty when he got to the airport. He tried to call Betty that afternoon. The phone rang and rang. Alan thought she was out on a walk, but Betty wouldn't have missed a call from Alan. They promised to talk to each other before Alan's flight took off. Alan found this weird that she wasn't answering the phone, but he had to catch his flight, so he decided that he would just call her when he got to his hotel and try not to worry. Uh, When he got to his hotel room later that evening, he phoned Betty again, and no answer. This was starting to make Alan nervous. Why wasn't she answering? This just 
wasn't like Betty at all, so Alan called his neighbor Richard and asked if he could go check on Betty. Richard rang the doorbell and knocked on the door, but still no answer. Alan thanked Richard for checking and decided he'll call her later. Maybe she was just taking a nap or helping with the baby. Alan, like most of us in this situation, was just trying to calm himself and not worry too much. She must be with the baby. Alan phoned the Montgomery's and Candy answered. Alan asked if Candy had seen Betty and Candy said she did see Betty earlier in the day. Betty was sewing when Candy swung by to grab her older daughter's swimsuit. The Gore's oldest daughter had a swim lesson but wanted to stay the night at the Montgomery's. Candy's daughter and her were best friends so Candy went to go get her swimsuit offering to take her to her swim lesson that night. Alan and his daughter then talked on the phone about the afternoon and Betty. Candy offered to go check on Betty but Alan said it was all right probably nothing to worry about. But Alan decided to call other neighbors to check in on his house. It was around 10 p.m. at this point way past Betty's bedtime and there seemed to be no answers and this made Alan very anxious. The neighbors found her and Alan's cars still in the garage. The garage door was also open with the lights on. Alan asked them to get into the house to check on Betty in any way that they could. Luckily, the neighbor Alan had contacted was their real estate agent and still had a key to the house, but the neighbors found that the front door was unlocked. Panic began to set in. The neighbors realized something clearly was wrong, and they hesitated to enter the house. They eventually started creeping through the house. All the doors to the rooms were closed, but they opened the second door and found the Gore's youngest daughter sitting in her crib all alone. Her face was red and streaked with tears. Feces and urine were leaking out of her diaper, and her voice was cracked from crying. She was clearly left there for a while. After checking every room in the house, the neighbors came to the utility room near the kitchen. Coming from this room was a pool of dark liquid all over the tiles. The smell of death was very thick. Alan phoned the house, and the neighbors answered, horrified and saddened, to break the news to Alan. They had found Betty, but she was dead. She was attacked so viciously that the right side of her face was a giant gash. The neighbors first thought that this was a gunshot wound, but Alan said that they didn't keep any guns in their house, so how could this have happened? The neighbors called the police while Alan was stuck helpless across the country. When the police arrived and the investigation began, they questioned Alan about Betty's day. They were soon given a critical piece of information during these interviews. The last person to see Betty Gore was Candy Montgomery. Candy started that day preparing for the kids' last day at their church's vacation Bible school. It was Friday the 13th, and the movie Friday the 13th was just released in theaters, as well as a second Star Wars installment, The Empire Strikes Back, and the Montgomerys were planning a family trip to see the movie that evening. Candy's daughter also wanted Alan and Betty's daughter to come along to see the movie and stay the night. So Candy had a pretty busy day. She ran a lesson at the church. Uh, she left her kids at the church while she went to go to see Betty Gore getting her daughter's swimsuit so they could take her to their swim lesson. Um, she then rushed to Target getting a Father's Day card, rushing back to the church to pick up all the kids, and then back to the house before going to the movies. When she arrived at church later that afternoon, a teacher noticed that Candy seemed off. Candy was known for wearing sandals in the summer and had them on this morning, as well as a burgundy shirt. But the teacher who noticed that Candy seemed off realized Candy was wearing sneakers and a blue shirt. After arriving home, Candy called Pat, asking if the Gore's oldest daughter could come with them to see the new Star Wars movie. Candy also mentioned that she just got the Gore's daughter's swimsuit so they could go to swimming lessons, chatting with Betty before leaving. Pat found it interesting that Candy was telling him these details, but he was even more confused when she asked, 
do you know where Alan was working today? Pat didn't know, and then they just ended their call. The rest of the evening was a blur of activities until Alan Gore called Candy to ask if he had seen Betty. Even more shocking, Alan called again later in the night to tell Candy that Betty was found dead, looking like it may have been a gunshot. It wasn't until further into the night the coroner discovered Betty was struck 41 times with a three-foot axe, which is found laying next to her. It was also found that Betty's heart was still beating through all 40 blows. The last and final strike was the one that killed her. The community was soon calling each other to talk about Betty's murder, and word was going around fast. The murder was so brutal, especially for the sleepy town of Wiley. Candy was up almost all night answering phone calls from neighbors, discussing the grotesque details, and wondering if the killer could still be at large. Many neighbors were gossiping with Candy, saying that this was the work of a madman. A madman who struck a woman 41 times and then had the audacity to shower in the house afterwards. Police found trails of blood from the utility room to the bathroom with a handprint on the shower wall. The neighbors were also asking Candy how Betty seemed that day or if she knew anything suspicious because Candy was the last person to see Betty. The police were suspicious though, but of Candy. After countless interviews, Candy stayed strong in her story to police. She had stopped by to get the swimsuit, and Betty seemed a little upset at first when Candy had arrived, as she didn't expect her there so early, but eventually warmed up to Candy, and they started just talking about their children, their vacation that Betty and Alan were going to go on, and then Candy just headed out. The police didn't have enough to go off of until Alan Gore confessed that he and Candy had just ended their affair. The police had their motive. They also had taken Candy's fingerprints during the investigation and found a match to the bloody fingerprints left at the crime scene. Candy Montgomery was then arrested for the murder of Betty Gore. The community was speechless. In their eyes, Candy was the doting wife and mother. She was a light in the community and church, but they also thought she would be too small to have wielded an axe that size, but to also be able to swing it 41 times? It surprised their friends and family that Candy could have done this. The community came together and even sent the Montgomerys thinking of you cards, sending sympathy to the accused axe murderer. At first, Candy denied the accusations and had the same story every time she was questioned, and she was eventually released on bail. The cops believed that she did this and were getting ready to go to trial. Candy hired local lawyer and fellow congregant Don Crowder. Don Crowder has never been in a murder trial before. He was actually a personal injury lawyer, but this was the only lawyer that Candy knew, so she hired him. The murder trial began in October 1980, almost four months since Betty's murder. Crowder spent lots of time working with Candy on appealing to the jury, deciding Candy's wardrobe, making her look more motherly, and suggesting she should lose weight, looking as small as possible so the jury couldn't even begin to believe that she wielded that axe. But he was also doubtful of Candy's story and thought it was best that she see a psychiatrist to try to get more memories out, try to help Candy figure out her story a little bit more. And so they flew from Houston to meet Dr. Fred Fasson. And it was found out that the psychiatrist that Crowder took Candy to was a clinical hypnotist. And so when Candy was interviewed by him, he asked her what happened on June 13th, 1980. And they talked for a long time about that day, focusing mainly on Candy's anger and control. Soon, the doctor offered to hypnotize Candy to get a better picture of her psychological condition. Once under hypnosis, Candy seemed to be quite uncomfortable and irritated. She started repeating hate over and over. And when asked what she was feeling, she started whispering, I hate her. When asked why she 
hated her, Candy responded, I won't let her hit me again. I don't want him. The doctor then tried another angle, asking if Candy had felt this way before. Candy started talking about a memory from when she was four years old. She had lost a race that angered her, throwing and breaking a jar that caused Candy to go to the hospital. While there, her mother was aggressively shushing Candy, trying to get her to stop crying, which made Candy very angry. Dr. Fasten asked how this made Candy feel, and she said, it makes me want to scream and kick. And Dr. Fasten said on the count of three to do just that. That's when the lobby was filled with Candy Montgomery's screams and wails, proving to the doctor and lawyer that this childhood trauma Candy faced was a trigger for her rage. This gave them the angle they needed to win this case. The trial began on October 20th, 1980, with a shocking claim from Candy's lawyer. Crowder claimed that Candy did kill Betty, but it was through self-defense. According to Candy, when she went to Betty that day, Betty was upset. The women did chat, but through Betty's body language, it seemed like she wanted Candy to leave. Candy soon asked where the swimsuit was and that she should get going, when Betty asked, are you sleeping with my husband? Candy immediately started to deny this accusation, but Betty kept pressing, enough for Candy to grow quiet, finally admitting that the affair had happened, but promised it was over now. Betty told Candy to just wait a moment and had left the room. Betty had returned holding a heavy three-foot woodcutting axe. This made Candy worried, but Betty held the weapon with the blade facing the ground, and it seemed like Betty was using it to just look intimidating and not like she was actually going to use it. And so she was holding this axe and basically told Candy, don't ever see Alan again. Betty talked about how she didn't want to see Candy anymore either and to go to the laundry room to get the swimsuit and leave. Candy did as she was told and when Betty came back to check on her, she realized that Betty's face had changed from pure anger to pain and sadness. This made Candy realize the consequences of the affair and tried to ease the tension. She placed a hand on Betty's shoulder and said, quote, Betty, I am so sorry, unquote. According to Candy, this enraged Betty, who then flung Candy's comforting hand and shoved her further into the room, standing in the way of any exit. Betty then grabbed the axe, repeating, you can't have him, while Candy pleaded for her to stop. Betty then whispered, I have to kill you, and then started to swing the axe, when Candy also grabbed onto the handle, beginning a dance of control between the two women. During the struggle, Betty had flung the handle up, causing the flat end to hit Candy's temple near her hairline. Somehow, Candy's hand started to bleed, causing her to feel more panicked, while Betty raised the axe over her head, aiming the landing blow onto Candy. Candy was able to move out of the way, but not fast enough that the axe hit her toe, causing Candy to cry out in anger and pain. Somehow, through all of this, Candy was able to get her hands back on the handle and hit Betty right on top of the head, hearing a loud popping noise before Betty fell to the ground. Candy tried to escape this time, but Betty got back up, blood squirting from her head, and pressed her body onto the door, trapping Candy once again. The two women were soon back to trying to control the axe handle, slipping on blood that now coated the floor and fighting for their lives. Betty was able to get herself into a position where there was space between them. She could hold the axe with one hand and started to shush Candy. The sound of the shushing, the gore's dogs barking loudly in the window, and the adrenaline of the attack then triggered Candy into a violent rage as she bolted up and took control of the axe. She shoved and hit Betty, so enraged Candy just kept swinging, screaming the entire time. The shushing from Betty had sent her back to her four-year-old 
itself, who was so angry that she lost the race and her mother was shushing her to be quiet. Candy's rage in this moment couldn't be stopped until she was completely exhausted from every swing. Then, realizing what she had done, she went down the hall and showered before leaving to go to the store. Candy just wanted everything to go back to normal and tried to do just that. She went back home, washed her clothes, got into her sneakers to cover up her bleeding toe, got into a blue shirt, and then drove to the store to get her Father's Day cards and then went back to the church and just tried pretending to be normal while she got her kids. She told this story in the courtroom. After telling her story, Candy was then cross-examined by the prosecutor, admitting that she did kill Betty, she did shower afterwards, and that she did try to cover up the murder, but claimed it was out of a panic. She was just trying to go back to her normal life. It was an accident. Candy didn't know what to do. It was all just one bad mistake. Betty lost her life that day because Candy was defending herself. The court was silent throughout Candy's questioning, assessing everything before deliberation. The testimony ended on a Friday, but the Montgomery's and Gore's had to wait until the next Wednesday for the final verdict. The jury found Candy Montgomery not guilty in the murder of Betty Gore. The self-defense angle that Crowder drummed up had worked, and Candy was never sentenced behind bars for murdering Betty Gore. Unfortunately, because Betty died that day, we will only know Candy's side of the story, and Candy's retelling is what the jury was tasked with judging. I don't think the murder of Betty Gore was premeditated, but Candy Montgomery still killed her with an axe. Betty's father has felt that Betty didn't get proper justice, and he's been quoted as saying, quote, as far as I'm concerned, justice will be served. She has to live with it. I wouldn't say I was happy with the verdict. We don't know what happened, and we never will know what happened, unquote. Which is true. Every time I look into the case, it's brought up, and the prosecution and Crowder use this angle as well. Betty was bigger. She was taller and I think a little bit heavier than Candy, so she could have overpowered Candy, and And she could have found out that her husband was cheating on her and was trying to threaten um, her husband's mistress. But it's just so hard because Candy did cheat with her husband. And I think, personally, I think that Candy killed Betty when she was caught. I don't know if it was truly self-defense. It is kind of weird. There's not really a whole lot of evidence throughout the case to not suggest the self-defense angle. Betty may have brought the axe in as a way to intimidate Candy and then may have tried to swing it once she got really, really upset about what was happening. But it's just so hard because we'll never, like, we probably will never know what truly happened. And maybe this is the truth. I don't want to discount Candy's story, but she killed someone. Betty lost her life. It just feels like Betty wasn't able to defend herself at all throughout this case. Like, with her relationship with her husband, her husband gets the final say, and his final say was that she was nagging and constantly annoyed with him, and I just feel so bad because I feel like she deserved a lot more, and maybe she could have been murdered by Candy, and now Candy got away with it through the angle of self-defense. Or Betty may have tried to attack Candy. This case is really hard to figure out what actually happened, but there are truths to the story. Candy and Alan had an affair. Betty needed more help than she got, and it's just really unfortunate how everything played out and that Betty became a victim in all of this. After her acquittal, Candy and her family relocated to Georgia, where her and Pat divorced a year later, despite Pat standing beside his wife throughout her trial. (sighs) Poor Pat. (laughs) Publicly 
it was shown your wife cheated on you. Now stand up for her, which is, uh, that's such a tough position to be in. And Candy put him in that position. It's very unfortunate. Anyway, nowadays, Candy apparently goes by her maiden name and her full name, which is Candace. So she just goes by Candace Wheeler. And she's actually a mental health therapist with her daughter. So Candy's lawyer, Don Crowder, unfortunately committed suicide in 1998 at the age of 56. After winning this historic murder case, Crowder became a successful lawyer, but was haunted with the way he handled this case. He soon grew depressed and unfortunately lost this battle. Betty's memory lives on through her two daughters who are in their 40s now. Not only did they lose their mother at a young age, but they ended up losing their father as well. Alan hardly grieved Betty's death. Weeks after her murder, he began dating a neighbor and they were married within a year and moved to a new town in Texas. Soon, Alan convinced Betty's parents to adopt his children and they became estranged. I think they've since reconciled and tried to live a pretty quiet, private life um, away from the tragedy, which is obviously understandable. It seems, though, that Alan has just had a string of unsuccessful marriages throughout um, the years, and one of their daughters has said that their parents probably would have ended up divorcing if her mother hadn't passed away. One of Betty's daughters is a teacher, honoring her mother, and even named one of her daughters after Betty. The daughters believe their mother would have been so proud of them and wish that their mother could still be up in a part of their lives, which is just so frustrating to hear because I, I just wish Betty wasn't taken away from her children, and my heart really goes out to those girls for being able to become successful adults after this. It's just a tragic case all around, and I feel really bad for Betty and her children. I feel like Betty really didn't get the justice she deserved, as people felt she wouldn't have tried to kill Candy, and from Alan's account, it didn't seem like she knew the affair was happening. This was six months after the affair had ended, or I think it was like a year later after the affair ended, so it is kind of interesting that that's when Betty approached Candy about the affair, but maybe she had found out, like maybe she had found some of Alan's things. The couple were known to give each other gifts and, like, cards and stuff, which is so weird to me that they were just, like, out in the open giving out gifts of affection to their mistresses, like, the one that they were having an affair with. It's just so weird to me. And the timing of Betty finding out was when they were, like, really happy in their relationship and they were going on, they were going on a big trip. So it's just a little surprising that that's when Betty would have confronted Candy. And again, people just really didn't believe that Betty would have tried to kill Candy. I... I get that Betty would have tried to threaten Candy, but I don't know if she would have tried to really attack her like that. So, this case is very gray. It's very hard to see who's telling the truth and who's lying. Um, Like I mentioned, the only truths that we have are Candy and Alan had an affair and Candy killed Betty. This is a really, really interesting case. There's a lot of pieces, and it's really complicated. So, I would love to hear all of your guys' thoughts um, in the comments. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this week's story. I know it's kind of an abrupt ending and kind of hard to end these because we talk about something so awful and then we're like, all right, goodbye. See you next time. So uppity. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you guys next week. Uh, if you would like to look more into today's case, you can find all of the sources I used uh, down below in the description.